Welcome to the Great Trials Podcast, where you get a behind-the-scenes look at America's greatest trials with the trial lawyers who tried them. People are hard to get over that. You're bringing a lawsuit and you caused a crash. That's why you have to spend a lot of time educating jurors about the crashworthiness concept by these safety devices in these vehicles because you want them to protect you, whether it's your fault or whether it's somebody else's fault. Please rise. Court is now in session. Welcome to the Great Trials Podcast. This is your host, Steve Lowry, along with the talented Yvonne Godfrey. Yvonne, how are you doing today? I'm good. I, I love that you do the intros because then I get a compliment every time. I know. I try to make it different every time. I don't know if you've noticed that. I, I have noticed it. <laughs> I figure by the time we get you know well into these, I'm going to be you know using my thesaurus and really, really digging. <laughs> yeah. You'll be like, the loquacious Yvonne Godfrey. <laughs> right, right. Exactly. See, now you're going to have to make me look that up and figure out what that means. <laughs> I'm actually not sure if I pronounced it right. So uh, maybe I might get Taras to crop that out of here. No, no, no. Let's leave. Everything stays. Um, well, uh, so Yvonne, how are, uh, how are you looking? Tell me this, Yvonne. Yeah. You know, we've handled a few cases against Ford uh, Motor Company. They're, uh, tell, the, tell our uh, audience they're generally easy to uh, litigate against. <laughs> So easy, so agreeable. Although I have to say that I actually, in all the products cases I've worked on, none of them have been Ford cases. So oh. what I usually hear is what it would be like if it was against Ford. Um, well, then uh, you, you have certainly missed out. And, uh, and our guest today is going to talk to us about uh, one of the cases he tried against Ford Motor Company. And, um, and, and I know he's no stranger to, to Ford. Uh, today we're speaking with uh, Ronnie Crosby with the Peters, Murdahl, Parker, Eltsroth, and Diedrich firm up in Hampton, South Carolina, just up the road from us here in Savannah. Ronnie, how are you doing today? I'm great, Steve. How are you? Uh, good. And uh, did I capture that uh, right? That when whenever you have a case against Ford, it's just uh, easy peasy and uh, and just uh, no problems whatsoever. Absolutely, as you know from your own experience, you know what, right. what they're going to offer pretty much. So. Right. Right, right, exactly. <laughs> so, so Yvonne, before I tell you about this case and, and then we talk about it, to, if, if you had a, a product liability case come in where there were injuries and bad injuries, uh, certainly bad injuries, uh, but then uh, the client 17 months after that commits suicide, how would you feel about a wrongful death case in that, uh, that instance? So knowing just a little bit about this case that we're going to talk about, I don't even know that I would have spotted some of the legal issues because I think I would have thought if I knew the injuries were really bad, I think I would have thought, you know, about what chronic pain does to somebody and, you know, debilitating injuries due to a person. And so to me, I would lump that right in. I would have lumped that right in with all the other injuries that come out of an accident like that. Um, but so I don't even know if I would have spotted some of the legal issues that we're going to talk about today initially. So I guess right. I'm saying it wouldn't have scared me off, but I think that's part of, cause I would, I wouldn't have even known what I was getting into. Right, right, right. Exactly. Um, well, uh, the case that we're talking about today is, uh, is Wickersham versus Ford motor motor company, which was tried at the U S district court of South Carolina up in Beaufort, uh, in 2016. Uh, it resulted in a, uh, $4,650,000 verdict 
and it was tried, uh, as I said, by our good friend uh, Ronnie Crosby. And uh, just to remind our listeners, uh, Ronnie has been practicing law since uh, 1993. Uh, he's a graduate of the Citadel and then from the University of South Carolina Law School in 1993. He has been a uh, uh, super lawyer, a, has been uh, chosen as one of the top lawyers in South Carolina. Uh, he's a um, terrific lawyer and uh, a good friend. And um, again, uh, I've had the opportunity to work on several cases with, with Ronnie and uh, they're always a pleasure to work on uh, uh, with him because um, it just makes things uh, easy and, and uh, you know, enjoyable to the extent you can work on a, a, a lawsuit with somebody who really knows what they're talking about. And Ronnie is certain, certainly one of those people. So uh, again, welcome, Ronnie. Uh, thank you. Thank you, Steve. So this Wickersham uh, case involved uh, John Wickersham. Uh, and John was a uh, pharmacist up in uh, South Carolina. And uh, he was driving his 2010 Ford Escape in February of 20, uh, 2011. And um, just a short uh, details of the case were that it was a rainy night. Uh, he lost control uh, of his vehicle and um, it struck a pole. And um, as a result of that, he was severely injured, uh, had lost an eye, uh, had basically shattered his, his face and, and his skull. Uh, and there was a claim brought against Ford Motor Company by Ronnie and his firm uh, that basically uh, said that at the, at the time that the airbag deployed, it happened so late in the nature of the accident that uh, Mr. Uh, Wickersham was, was up against the steering wheel or, or out of position so that when the airbag deployed, uh, it, um, instead of protecting him, uh, made his injuries much, much worse. Uh, is that basically correct, Ronnie? That's correct. Um you know, airbags are typically deployed within the first, you know, 10 to 30 milliseconds of a crash event. And this one deployed, um, if I recall correctly, about 146 milliseconds. Most crashes are over within right. 146 milliseconds um, as far as the, the harmful events. So it would have allowed him a lot of time to get near the steering wheel into that danger zone when the bag deployed. And I know for our listeners that uh, when we talk in terms of milliseconds, uh, that that can sound uh, like really fast. I mean, because it's a, um, just part of a second. So, um, but in, the, in terms of airbags and in terms of the life of a crash, 146 milliseconds is a very long time and is essentially right at the tail end of that crash. That's correct. Um, so, and, and what made this case, you know, uh, really fascinating for me, uh, Ronnie, and, and presented a lot of challenges. I mean, obviously, any product liability case uh, is challenging, they're expensive, they're difficult, and then especially any product liability case where you're um, going after Ford Motor Company is, is more challenging, and, and uh, uh, just because... Uh, um, you know, I, I don't want to say anything about the company, but they, they make it difficult to try cases against them and they challenge uh, everything uh, that you do. And so um, uh, 
and and they can be uh, difficult cases uh, difficult cases to try. Um, but added on to that, Ronnie, what you had to face in this case is not only proving the defect, pro proving the alternative design, and, and you know, and just proving what Ford could have done, but was that your client, uh, Mr. Uh, Mr. Wickersham, uh, battled the pain and suffering that he went through for 17 months before he decided to tragically take his own life. And so as part of uh, your case against Ford, you included a wrongful death claim uh, against Ford for causing the death of Mr. Wickersham that happened 17 months after the, um, after the collision. And so, um, so that had to, at least, you know, when you're, when you're first looking at that case, Ronnie had to present uh, particular challenges. You want to talk about, you know, sort of how you looked at this issue of how you were going to prove up the, you know, one, the case, first of all, and then two, that his death was caused by it. Sure. Yeah, it, it certainly presented a challenge. But, you know, when I was first hired, Mr. Wickersham was alive. Um, and he was actually alive when we first filed the personal injury suit and a loss consortium claim on behalf of his wife. Um, unfortunately, not much was moving in the case during this early time because we were setting up expert inspections, you know, trying to examine component parts. As you know, you, you typically, if you're going to remove something from a vehicle, uh, which we needed to do, um, you want to get uh, Ford engaged and they will not come and look at a vehicle unless suits filed. Um, as a you know a typical um, approach that if there's no litigation they don't look at it so we ended up filing suit we're going through that process um, when Mr. Wickersham unfortunately um, 17 months after the incident uh, committed suicide and then we had to make the decision um, as to whether to to attempt to link um, and bring a wrongful death case linking his suicide to the accident. And, um, you know, from the medical records, it was pretty clear that his chronic pain had never let up, um, you know, from the time of the accident. And, you know, what's interesting is he committed suicide the month after his uh, COBRA insurance um, expired or the same month, um, which is, you know, it's 18 months. So his his, his uh, coverage expired. So he knew he had finally found some treatment over at Emory University um, that was starting to help, but he couldn't afford to pay for it out of pocket. And uh, I believe that that bleak future played in, into that because he uh, was living with such debilitating pain. So, you know, we brought the case, but we're still a little unsure how jurors would look at it. Um, and in trying to make a decision whether to try the case on the wrongful death, we did a focus group and, it really, um, for that purpose, because I was concerned, you know, some people look at stigmatized suicide, and I was really heartened to see how accepting of that idea a juror, you know, would be that, you know, that that, that would be something that, you know, could be tied to chronic pain and people would accept that. So that was probably the biggest part right there is me becoming convinced that, you know, you know ordinary jurors um, would accept that proposition. And, and it really w was 
a lot of you, they much more easily accepted than I expected. And did that, uh, you know, that makes me think of a couple of things. I mean, there's certainly, a, a, you know, a people of faith who, uh, you know, hold that it's just an absolute sin to commit suicide. Um, how, did that play into it at all as far as your focus groups and jury selection? Yeah, well, that was one of the things that we were really worried about. And we had a pretty d- diverse focus group and, 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 and what we figured would be reflective of our jury pool, a fairly conservative jury. And, you know, it didn't get to the point where we really had to get into the faith issue. You know, I think it's so, we see so much of it right now, that suicide with um, people coming from um, back from wars and, and, you know, the military veterans committing suicide at such a high rate. Um, you know, if this was 50 years ago, I think it would have been a hard push, you know, I mean, and, and, you know, I was brought up, you know, with people always saying, you know, if you commit suicide, you can't go to heaven and, you know, that type of thing, you're going somewhere. And we were worried about that, but it just was not, after the focus group, it was not uh, a, a great concern for us. Right. So how was how that, you, so you met Mr. Wickersham while he was alive. Um, you know, I guess the, was it clear that he was in a depression and, and having difficulty at that point? You know, when I met with him, he, he, he seemed down, but, you know, he was on a lot of pain medication. Um, but he was uh, in such pain, you know, was, was his focus. And, you know, unfortunately, none of us had any idea that he was going to commit suicide. I mean, obviously, um, but he was never deposed in the case. So, he never got to tell his story. I mean, he, he wasn't knocked out. He told doctors how the airbag injured his face, but because he didn't get to tell his story, it allowed Ford to defend it, basically saying that there was some other uh, mechanism. Basically, they said that Mr. Wickersham was leaning over when and, that, and then he lost control. And when he hit a curb, the gear shifter um, went into his eye. And so, you know, you had that, added difficulty of not having the person that was in the accident be able to tell the jury what happened in the accident, um, right. which was a, a you know, it, it just created a, a vacuum there um, for the defense to take advantage of. Right. So, I mean, you know, I, I you know, and I, obviously we know that they defend their cases very vigorously, but when you see a, an airbag that deploys 146 milliseconds, after impact, I mean, what was their explanation for that? Just that it didn't matter? No, interestingly enough, what, you know, because basically this, in this accident, the vehicle hit a curb, which would have been what started the data recorders, you know, it'll back up five seconds before the accident, but the recorder actually only records 150 milliseconds of crash, uh, of, of crash impulse. So, and, and then when he hit the curb, he went about 30 foot and hit a, a small tree. Um, and that's when the airbag deployed. Um, and so, and, and, and we were timing from that tree, but what Ford reconstruction expert said is no, this wasn't one crash event. There were two separate crashes. It jumped a curb, went airborne, came partially nose down, um, and then it went into the tree and basically they were making it a two crash event so that they could explain that 146 milliseconds. Um, 
And, you know, so it really became a lot about the reconstruction, um, whether there was the vehicle hit a curb and, you know, rolled to the tree or whether it hit the curb, went airborne, had an initial uh, an event, and then a second crash with the um, tree. And so, you know, as much as there was talk about experts and then them denying that it was defective, they tried it on causation as well, saying he hit his eye on something else. But then they also um, attacked the reconstruction. So there was a big variance in what they were saying and what we were saying happened. This episode of the Great Trials podcast is brought to you by Legal Technology Services or LTS. Yvonne, have you ever been in the courtroom and right when you're about to make the big point to the judge or to the jury, play a video, bring up a document and your technology has frozen or not worked? No joke, Steve. That has never happened to me because I use LTS. Yes, and LTS, Legal Technology Services, are experts at legal courtroom technology, whether you're talking about demonstrative exhibits, playing videos, doing day-in-the-life videos, or doing settlement videos, or just presenting your evidence to the jury. These are the experts. They can also help you out as far as scheduling depositions nationwide. They can take care of it, arrange for the court reporter, the videographer, arrange the location. They get what a trial involves, they get what a deposition involves, and you can use them to make your life a lot easier. They have also been voted four times as either the best of trial services or best hot seat technician by the Daily Report. So you should definitely call them up. And when you do, mention the Great Trials podcast and that's legal technology services. You can talk to Bob, Melanie, or anyone else on their team. They are fantastic people and fantastic at their jobs. Legal technology services at ltsatlanta.com. That's ltsatlanta.com. Right, so, I mean, if they're saying that, the, that it came uh, nose down when it jumped the curb, is, are they saying that was the point at when he supposedly would have hit his eye on the gear shifter? And was there, uh, any sort of evidence that he had hit his eye on that gear shifter? No, they said he hit the gear shifter at the curb. Basically, they were trying to get in the cause of the accident. Um, basically trying to say, well, it was his fault that the accident occurred. And, you know, in a crash where in this case, you know, at least in South Carolina, that's not relevant. You know, it's really the enhanced injuries. So they said basically had him leaning over um, in a out of what's called an out of position and they had him lined up with the gear shift when he hit the curb and see that would be an explanation for the accident occurring. And then they, that's where he would have got his injury. And then this whole airbag thing, he wouldn't even have been, you know, been there when the airbag went off. So even if it went off late, they said it, it, it doesn't matter because he, he got his injury from the gear shift. Um, yeah. And I think, you know, you and I were talking ahead of time about this, uh, Ronnie, and you said that when, um, uh, you know, initially, the way the case came in, it was that this airbag uh, deployed late, which it certainly did. But then you said Ford did some litigation testing, and what did Ford find from their own testing? Well, they tried to, 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 to it, as you know, oftentimes automotive companies will do a crash test in the litigation to help support their defense. And this crash was what's called a, a small or a low overlap crash, where the the tree. Um, that Mr. Wickersham struck was outside of the front frame rail. So only thing being crushed is, um, you know, sheet metal on the fender and basically it hits the tire, but 
auto uh, companies don't have crash testing in that configuration, or at least during that period of time, they are today. So they didn't know what the car would do in that type of crash. So they ran one at 19 miles an hour, just like our crash, everybody agreed it was a 19 hour, mile an hour impact with the tree and the airbag did not go off. And so we actually use that and, and, and as an alternative theory in the case, you know, and, and really a theory that turned into a theory of first order that we shouldn't have had an airbag at all in this crash based on their litigation testing. And then we compared it to some of their other crash testing and, and really made the argument that it should have never been an airbag. And, you know, and the testimony was that the reason this, uh, you got these conflicting results and very similar between the litigation crash testing and this crash is because the calibration for the um, algorithm that runs the airbags was insufficient because it couldn't consider this type of crash in that algorithm. That's why you're getting inconsistent results there. Um, so we took that position that Ford's own litigation test supports this theory that there should never have been an airbag. And then when it gave us, it gave us a late bag, which is all wrapped up in that improperly calibrated algorithm. And so I did in this litigation testing that Ford had done, did they have a, a crash dummy inside the vehicle? Um, you know, interestingly enough, they did not. They did have a, a weighted uh, water bottle, but they didn't put a dummy in. And we made an issue of that, that they could have, you know, added that dummy. Um, you and know, you would have seen it presumably that that dummy wasn't injured at all. Right. You would have seen the, the, the you know, if they had an instrumented dummy, we would have been able to see what the forces were as well as see what the movements inside the vehicle would have been um, during the crash. And, um, but they chose not to do that. Um, well, it, so it sounds like then that some of Ford's own testing, I mean, that's, that's, uh, you know, something that's, you know, turns out to work out very well is that Ford's own testing pretty much proved your case or help you prove your case um, that, uh, you know, had the airbag not uh, deployed, especially not deployed late, um, then your client wouldn't have been injured at all. That's right. Not, not as bad. Well, the testimony from the biomechanical engineer, and I don't think that Ford disputed it, there was no other injuries other than spatial injuries. So the testimony was that, if he would have had any injuries, it may have been, you know, some discomfort from the seat belt being across his chest, or maybe even, you know, he struck the steering wheel, but it would have all been minor um, in the category. And I don't think there was a dispute about that. Because 19 mile an hour crash, you know, you really shouldn't have catastrophic injuries for sure. Right. So, um, so then the other part of the case, and, and I, I do want to, uh, you know, make sure we talk a, a lot about this, but uh, the other part of the case is that, um, you know, he receives these injuries, and from what I have written down, Ronnie, and, if, and tell me if I'm wrong, is that he had essentially, uh, his left eye had ruptured, uh, he had received a skull fracture, a broken jaw, broken cheekbones, and his nose had been, uh, I guess, smashed to the point that he couldn't breathe. Uh, and then he had to have uh, some pretty significant facial reconstruction. Is that right? That's correct. Yeah, he lost his, his eye after a while. It became obvious that there, it was not going to be something they could save. And so they had to 
had to take his eye and he had a, um, you know, an implant put in. Um, and then, um, yeah, he just had really extensive facial fractures and the, he had an injury to the trigeminal nerve, which is, you know, right coming down the front of your face. And it's the most, one of the most painful nerve injuries that you can have. And, and, you know, so therein, you know, set him up for, you know, th this pain that was just incurable. And he saw all types of pain doctors, you know, just really kept seeking out help um, and could not get it. And he could not work as a pharmacist because, you know, he was on pain medication. He couldn't have worked right. with the pain, but certainly he couldn't fill prescriptions um, on the type of narcotics that he was um, having to take for his pain. Right. So, uh, um, and then one thing that we, we haven't discussed so far is that, um, you know, your client, um, Mr. Wickersham, had had a history of uh, depression and, or I think he had even been uh, diagnosed with bipolar. Yes, he is, was diagnosed with bipolar some, some time before this accident and, and, and had experienced depression. He was being, you know, treated over a course of years. Um, you know, uh, and, and he had had prior suicidal ideations, which, you know, you, you might, uh, in this business that, uh, the, a defendant, um, any defendant would take that pre-existing condition and, and there's that pre-existing suicidal ideation and try to blame that for his ultimate suicide as opposed to his chronic pain. So we did have, you know, some obstacles to overcome with that. And was that something that y'all, you incorporated with the focus group too? You know, yeah, we did. We did uh, at least put that out to the focus group. Um, you know, that, that those, you know, that those facts existed and they were undisputed. Um, so yeah, that we, we wanted to make sure that was out there to see how, what impact it would have. Right. And I mean, you, I saw your client, it looked like he'd been diagnosed in 2003 uh, with some mental depression and, um, and uh, bipolar and had said he had suicidal ideations in 2003. But then I, I thought one thing that was interesting was that in January of 2011, he complained again of worsening depression and suicidal ideations again to his psychiatrist. And so, you know, one thing knowing how it is to litigate these cases, I was wondering about is, did Ford try to suggest that uh, his wreck in February of 2011 was him trying to commit suicide? You know, they did through, it, 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 but they were never able to get enough medical there to, to do that. They would insinuate that that was a case, you know, during pretrial discovery, um, the judge prohibited any um, talk of that in the trial because there was no evidence to back that up. But certainly that was, you know, something that, that they were trying to get some traction with witnesses and that type of stuff to, to get that there, but, it, but they never could develop it. Right. I think you had, from what I read from the briefs, you, you had um, uh, shown that he had taken, been put on Abilify and then, uh, essentially after that was doing better, but prior to the collision. That's correct. Um, he had that episode right before the 
accident, you know, in January of 2011, and the accident was February 3rd, but he'd gotten put on medication and, you know, the, the, the testimony was that he was stabilized, um, but that didn't prevent, you know, Ford from making that argument at the trial. They continued that theme that, you know, right before this accident, he had this suicidal ideation and major depression. Um, and that that's really the cause of his suicide. It wasn't the pain, but, you know, in fact, the, the records um, indicated that his depression had, um, was doing much better all throughout this other, and his main problem was a chronic pain that he, uh, it just, it wouldn't let go of him. Right. So, yeah, so talk about that, you know, the way you put that together for trial, the, the fact that he was going through this chronic pain and how the, what type of effect that has on him and how you were able to link up the fact that he had, you know, made the decision to take his own life and that that was part of the, part of the damages. Well, we sort of, you know, used lay witnesses to lay a lot of the foundation about, you know, who John was, how he took such pride in his work as a pharmacist, how, you know, his family life was, and then how things had changed um, and the toll that it was taken on him. Um, and then the medical records were just replete from the day of this, you know, that he got out of, you know, from the accident where he could start treatment with pain, uh, that it was just unrelenting. He actually was admitted to a hospital in March of 2012, three months before his demise, um, where he had told his pain management doctor that he was thinking about committing suicide because of the pain and he received treatment there. And we used those medical records um, and some of those physicians. Uh, but we hired a forensic psychiatrist um, from here in South Carolina named uh, Donna Maddox, who does a lot of the forensic psychiatry for death penalty cases and that type of thing. And she did a really good job of walking the jury through the medical records and tying all of it together and, 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 and educating them on the idea of how chronic pain causes and, and can lead to suicide. And um, so it was, it was multifaceted as in most trials, you know, we had lay medical and then expert testimony, you know, from a very, um, very good witness, you know, who was very believable in the way that, that we presented it, um, that this pain was the cause. And, uh, of his, his death. And obviously the jury accepted that explanation. Ford had a psychiatrist, not a forensic psychiatrist, sit in the courtroom during her testimony. And uh, ultimately they did not call her as a witness. So the jury was pretty much left with Ford, the argument from Ford's counsel, but largely evidence that we put in on this issue. Um, um, and I think they chose not to call her because our witness was so convincing on the medicine. Well, and I, I mean, I'm just thinking it goes both ways, right? When you have somebody who has a long history of depression, because I mean, a lot of people battle with depression their whole lives, but you know, clearly he was seeking help and finding a way to cope with it that whole time. And you know, that from his diagnosis, you know, and then kind of going to a psychiatrist again, when things are getting rough versus, you know, when chronic pain enters the picture. So, you know, in some ways I think it's actually even the prior history is on, almost makes it can make it more convincing that this is something that he was still fighting through until, 
you know, he started battling this chronic pain. Well, you're hitting right on a point that was made through our friend psychiatrist is that there's a much big difference between a suicidal ideation and you tell somebody that, you know, you've had thoughts about something versus putting a plan into place. And, you know, she made the point very well that, look, he was doing what he should have. He had these ideations. He talked to his physician. He was continuing the treatment. He, he was a smart person. He knew what was going on with himself and, you know, he sought treatment for it. And, and this is a whole different situation when you introduce this unrelenting chronic pain. So yeah, that, that's very much the way things turned out. Yeah, I mean, part of it is if you're if you're taking the steps to tell your doctor that you're having suicidal ideations, then that's the suggestion that you don't want to commit suicide. So, I mean, so he was trying to do the things he uh, he should. He just, uh, uh, I mean, from what it sounds like, uh, couldn't deal with the just the constant and extreme pain that he was going through. As well as one thing I saw, you know, how you argued this. Uh, Ronnie was that, you know, that added on to the fact that he was no longer working as a pharmacist and, you know, and as a man, uh, you know, and it's true for women too, but I guess, you know, men, I think, you know, identify themselves through their occupation a lot of times. And if you can't do your occupation anymore, that sort of uh, uh, goes against your self-worth as well as uh, what I read here, not only the, the family finances they were going through, they were struggling with, but that he just sort of had this idea that, he um, looked monstrous and thought he was scaring people with his face, including his, uh, was it his uh, nieces and nephew or grandchildren? Yes, um, his grandchild. So, yes. I mean, all of those things added together just uh, put somebody in a position where it, it almost makes it feel like there's no option. Well, and like Ronnie mentioned too about, you know, if he knew his, his COBRA insurance was running out, I mean, I... I relate to that right away, feeling like you're going to be a burden, a financial burden on your family if things are already tough and, you know. Yeah, that, that, that was definitely the picture. And, you know, unfortunately, he had found that treatment at Emory University where they were doing some type of injections into that nerve and um, was getting some relief. And then when the money ran out, you know, I mean, I forgot. There were, were very expensive treatments. Um, and I think it was a combination of everything that you and Steve said there about, you know, the self-worth and, you know, here this becomes an issue of hopelessness because I don't have the money, didn't want to be a burden, that whole picture. And, you know, who knows what was going through his mind, but I, I suspect it was a combination of all of that. So, you know, from a, from a legal standpoint, I mean, it brings up a, a you know, interesting case and, and uh, how has the, I mean, obviously the judge let this, uh, go to the jury, uh, and you got a great verdict. Uh, what's this? And this was in 2016, I should mention. So, what's the status of the case now? Well, we tried a case, as you said, in U.S. District Court. The judge denied their post-trial motions. Uh, there was an appeal to the Fourth Circuit. We just argued that in May of this year, and at the arguments, the panel that we drew. Um, was really having a hard time with the idea that Ford could be held liable for um, suicide, or at least one of the judges was definitely having a hard time. And they felt like that there was not enough guidance from our Supreme Court on when you can recover for suicide. Um, and so after the arguments, 
the judges issued an order um, requesting the South Carolina Supreme Court to certify uh, that question um, as to under what circumstances there, you, one can be held liable for suicide under a wrongful death context. So um, just in recent weeks, our Supreme Court has accepted the certified question. So now we're going to have to brief that issue and one other issue, um, you know, to the South Carolina Supreme Court. And I think whatever their decision is, is likely going to be dispositive of, of that as far as the case goes. Um, re related to that, when I was reading the, the briefing on the motion for summary judgment all the way up, I, I just think this briefing was so good that y'all did, Ronnie. I mean, like, these are really good briefs. I feel like, um, I mean, who knows how it'll turn out in the South Carolina Supreme Court, but I thought that's a tricky issue that, um, you know, in the district court, I, in particular, maybe federal court versus state court, I feel so like so much of that can come down to briefing. And I just thought y'all's briefing was amazing. Well, thank you. I had some good help. I had a, um, an attorney from here in Hampton who's married to one of my partners named Kathleen Barnes helped me with the briefing. She does appellate work. Um, and uh, she actually sat throughout the trial with me as well. Um, and, you know, sort of at least try to make sure we cover all of our bases legally. And, um, you know, I don't think she anticipated we'd be writing as many briefs as we have, but this, uh, she's been a big help. Well, you know, it, it seems like the, the, obviously this issue has come up in other instances. You know, I and mean, one thing that I was thinking of is the, you know, NFL concussion litigation where, you know, I mean, that's one of the sort of telltale signs of, of them uh, having uh, CTE and, and is the, the fact that so many of them have committed suicide. And it seemed like, you know, in, in those instances, the courts really haven't had an issue with tying suicide into injury. So I guess I'm wondering, you know, is it more of a public policy type argument or is it, um, you know, just that, that we're not going to, uh, you know, we don't, we don't want to say that, you know, you can recover for a death case in a suicide or is it, I mean, because as I'm thinking through this and talking to you it, is it, you know, I mean, it's sort of the, um, if, if Mr. Wickersham hadn't, committed suicide, but he had continued to treat for lifelong pain, I mean, that would certainly be compensable and certainly be a part of the damages. So the fact that, you know, he got to a point where, you know, unfortunately, he felt he had no other choice than, than to take his own life. I mean, I'm not sure why that wouldn't be um, recoverable uh, and, and linked up to the in your damages, which, which obviously the, the trial court judge did. Yeah, and I think that that's going to be the issue is whether there should be, whether it's recoverable at all, whether suicide is ever recoverable. Our courts never said that it wasn't, but they've never said that, you know, outright that it was. You could read in this, the, the only couple of cases, you know, that talk about it. Um, you know, and, and if it is, what is the standard? Is it ordinary proximate cause? where it only needs to be foreseeable that some injury could occur, but that is, you don't have to foresee the precise injury. Or is there a different standard for suicide in and of itself? Is there some heightened standard in order to make that connection? And I think that that's, that's sort of the choices the court's going to have on this. Um, 
but you're right. You see it around the country. There's other types of events. I, I can't see why a product uh, liability context would be any different than the NFL case or where we see it in some of the drug cases or, you know, if, if, if there's a medical tie, one would think that it should be recoverable, but obviously um, Ford has a much different position about that. Well, is, is, go ahead, Yvonne. Well, I was just going to say from reading the briefing and, and like some of the restatement language also just seems so sort of bizarre and, and kind of out of touch talking about, you know, insanity or these impulses um, as, as though that would make it, these moments of insanity or impulse would make it more connected than somebody who had basically been battling the impulses or the, the, you know, suicidal feelings related to an injury for, um, you know, months or years. And I think that therein lies the problem, you know, as we discussed earlier, we have some old thoughts that stigmatize suicide and that, you know, those were in existence you know, when I was coming up for sure. Um, and then we have science and medicine and what we know about the brain now and how we know about you get to, someone gets to a uh, point of committing suicide. Um, and there's sort of a clash there, you know, between some of the old law and this archaic sentence, which seems archaic to, to you for sure, um, you know, because it's been a lot more talk about suicide today and in recent decades than, you know, 50 years ago. And um, so that, that's sort of one of the rubs that's there. And I think the court's going to have to figure out, um, you know, where that falls out. You know, I think, um, you know, I, I, I have a belief at least that, 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 you know, given all that we know about suicide, that the court's going to treat it as really any other injury, uh, you know, and what you're required to prove for anything else that you're trying to tie to an incident. Right. I hope so. Right. One, one of the things you mentioned, Ronnie, was that the, the court was are going to look at whether or not there would be a heightened uh, burden to tie in suicide. I guess I'm wondering, is there some other injury in South Carolina where you have a, this heightened burden or heightened standard? No, there is none. It would be an, a complete outlier. You know, in South Carolina, Emotional distress in a negligence context is not recoverable absent physical injury. You know, you right. have to have, unlike a defamation or something where you don't have to have physical injury. But outside of, of that, there is no, no, but it would still be the same proximate cause charge. Um, so it would be, it would be setting it apart from any other type of injury for sure. Right. It would be basically create, making a category of its own that's uh, specific to suicide. Correct. How does it work in the um, South Carolina Supreme Court? Like, will, will y'all definitely get oral argument or does it just depend? You know, on this, I would think we would get oral argument. They don't have to, you know, as most appellate courts don't have to give you. But, you know, something of this significance, um, I feel like the court is going to want to hear from the lawyers. You know, the other issue that's before them dealing with comparative fault in a crashworthiness context just uh, gosh, two, two years ago, we had another certified question in a General Motors case that was sent over from the district court to the Supreme Court. And uh, they gave us oral argument, the court ruled. And now in this case, 
uh, Ford's arguing about an interpretation, how the district court here in Wickersham interpreted the uh, answer to the certified question in that case, which was uh, named Donzi versus General Motors. So, you know, I feel like the court's going to want to want to hear some on that as well. So between the two, I think that will give us oral arguments. Steve, I, I think we should have a field trip. I think we should be there. I definitely would like to go up there and watch it. And uh, it's a fascinating case. Um, the live stream, you know, our arguments. Or, or <laughs> right, right. Yeah, exactly. They're all recorded. Then we can have a sequel. Taras Tara says he's going to come too. <laughs> There's plenty of room in there. Um, yeah. <laughs> you know, this is one of those, and Steve, I know you've been involved in these where, you know, where's the Saxon happened in 2011? Here we are in 2018, seven years later. And, yeah. You know, we probably got another year left in the, and who knows, there could be a way it gets sent back if they create a, a new heightened standard that we were previously unaware of. I mean, I would feel like we would go back and potentially retry it. So right. these things take on a long life sometimes. You really got to gotta plan for that. Um, there is yeah. no, no easy, easy um, end to some of these. This episode of the Great Trials Podcast is brought to you by Forge Consulting. So when a case gets resolved and you've reached a resolution for your client, a lot of times that is only half the job or a portion of the job. Many times the clients still need help on either setting up trust or figuring out how they're going to manage their the money that they've received. And when you have questions like that, that is where Forge Consulting comes in and you can find them at forgeconsulting.com. Yeah, they can really help you out with a lot of the stuff that can be really hard to navigate both for your clients and for the lawyers. They can do stuff like administer special needs and other types of settlement trusts. They can help your clients address and preserve Medicare and Medicaid benefits. They can assist with investing um, assets and expediting the settlement process. They're, they're really fantastic. If your brain kind of turns off when you get with numbers, then these guys can help you out. They also specialize in structured settlements, structuring attorney's fees, traditional annuities, and other financial management portfolio type questions. They can help your clients in all aspects. Please reach out to Forge Consulting. You can find them at forgeconsulting.com. And when you reach out to Forge Consulting, please mention the Great Trials Podcast. Again, that's forgeconsulting.com. So on this comparative fault issue, I, I didn't realize that was an issue here. The, um, I mean, with, with the law of South Carolina in that, you know, uh, you're not looking at the cause of the accident, you're looking at the, you know, how, how it essentially performed. How, how does comparative fault come into play in, in that um, instance? Or are they trying to change the law of South Carolina? Well, no. What the jury found, Mr. Wickersham, 30% at fault in the use of his seat restraint, his seat belt. Um, I, and I believe in South Carolina, if you're negligently using your uh, safety device, that, that that would come in, not the cause of the accident. Although I believe they probably followed him for causing the accident. That was under the negligence cause of action. Um, and basically Ford had argued that there was slack in his seatbelt and he was negligent having that slack in there. Um, the question now is, and, and if we only had negligence, I would agree. 
but we also had a strict liability and warranty case. And the judge ruled that because we brought it under strict liability and warranty, and based on the Donzi opinion, our courts already said there is no comparative fault in warranty or strict liability because those are statutory causes of action. Right. And that, you know, the only defenses are statutory. And uh, so that's the issue. Ford's arguing that the comparative fault and the negligence cause of action should be applied to the warranty and strict liability um, because it involved the use of the product. Um, you know, I, I, I thought the Donzi opinion was pretty clear on that, that it would not apply uh, because Donzi only evolved warranty and strict liability. We dropped the negligence to keep out any comparative and the court agreed with us and said, yeah, comparative is not applicable. But here that they're in, they're trying to push an argument that it should be and it should be distinguished from accident causing fault. They're sort of conflating crashworthiness to the underlying theory of warranty or strict liability. So this, uh, um, it's, you know, how the law works, you know, lawyers are always making arguments for different interpretations of things. And Ford has well, succeeded on convincing the fourth circuit. Um, unlike the district court who was convinced otherwise that we were correct. Um, convincing the fourth circuit that there was an open issue there. So that's before the court as well. So um, when you said that the jury found that, that he was 30% at fault for the use of his seat restraint, it, it, is, does that mean the jury, I guess, uh, believed a bit of what Ford was saying about just slack in the seatbelt? Yeah, and we, we had to concede that there was some slack in the seatbelt. Um, but, you know, in, in, in driving a vehicle, you don't sit static. And they were taking it from a static with your seat all the way to the back of the seat position. And as you alluded to earlier, it, you know, it, it was raining that night. And it very well may have been that Mr. Wickersham was leaned forward somewhat, you know, trying to see. Right. Um, he'd had some, you know, cataract issues and stuff in the past. Didn't have great night vision. So, but Ford argued that that was evidence of him not using it correctly. And, uh, you know, in the, in the jury, as juries often do when they're given a choice about the signing comparative fault, you know, they, they put, they faulted him for that. Um, yeah. And I guess we should, uh, for the, for our listeners, uh, when we say slack in the seatbelt, I mean, that's, uh, something that product liability lawyers talk about a lot. It's essentially a looseness or the belts pulled a little bit off the spool so that it sits kind of loosely on, uh, and, um, which, you know, to me, it just makes more sense. He was leaning forward. I mean, that's kind of hard to right. do, kind of hard to get a seatbelt to give you slack these days. Like, I feel like right. you're not pulling on it or, you know, doing something crazy. It's, you know, I don't know. It draws back in. Right. Yeah. But you know, who, who knows what the decision-making process is. I've always thought that they probably put some, put that comparative, even though they couldn't assign it to the, uh, fault in causing the crash. You know, I think a lot of times people are hard to get over that. You're bringing a lawsuit and you caused a crash. And, you know, yeah. that's why you have to spend a lot of time educating jurors about the crashworthiness concept. And, you know, you buy these safety devices in these vehicles because you want them to protect you, whether it's your fault or whether it's somebody else's fault. But, you know, you always have the, somebody who, who may have a, a hard time, you know, getting over that. And, uh, I tend to think it was more that than the slack, but the argument was about the slack. 
Right. Yeah, no, that makes perfect sense. I mean, I, I've seen that in focus groups where they just decide that, you know, they have to give some percentage to the uh, plaintiff just because, uh, you know, the collision shouldn't have happened in the first place or something along that line. Were you um, um, all able to talk to your jury, Ronnie? Huh, interestingly enough, no. Our, our judge, um, you know, he said you could talk to him and thank him and that type of stuff, but he, get, he, he does not allow you to talk about, about the deliberations. Um, Ford did send an investigator out, and maybe he didn't make it clear enough, but he, uh, after the verdict, he got a judge called a, stat, a conference and he had basically got a report that Ford had someone out interviewing jurors and he was pretty disturbed about it. So we don't know. I only know from, uh, I didn't know, but there was a lawyer in Columbia whose cousin was on the jury and she later told him about it and, you know, some about, you know, but not nothing that was really informational to us, you know, right. but there was some people and that's where I pick up the, the idea about the um, accident causing fault about him him being at fault in the accident is that apparently at least what you know he told me from t having dinner with his cousin that she said there were some people who had trouble with that idea so um, I don't know if that was a compromise after when the judge made that directive I certainly didn't make any effort to uh, to go talk to anybody about it right <laughs> you know yeah which kind of makes sense you know and his, his point is you shouldn't be able to, to invade the jury jury deliberations. You shouldn't, you know, what goes in there is, 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 you know, not to be, you know, talked about and make jurors potentially make them feel bad about, you know, what went on. Right. So, uh, Ronnie, and I'm sorry if I, uh, if, if I mess this up, the uh, connection froze up on me a little bit. Is the judge taking any action because of that, or is he basically that that's the end of it? No, uh, they assured uh, him that, that that was done, and, uh, you know, they didn't. Um, and, you know, all courts don't do that, so it's not anything uh, to fall forward for, because I know in, like, you know, a lot of people, have, I've talked to jurors after a trial before, um, but... You know, he was the first judge I've ever seen to really take a hard line about that. Um, so no, I don't. I, I don't know that he made that clear. I think it was, you know, he may have said it, but maybe not in the direct context that he did after the trial. So I don't, you know, I, I think everybody took them at their word that they were not going to contact any other jurors. No, I mean it's a, it's an important thing. I mean we try to talk to jurors whenever we are allowed to, um, and uh, you learn so much about what juries uh, focus on what they pick up on you know and things you didn't even think about that they uh you know uh thought were just a huge deal and and you know as lawyers sometimes we we miss that but that's it's always valuable to hear from juries um afterwards i think ford probably spends a lot of time um and effort talking to jurors after trials when they're allowed to um and but you know i could get to the court's point that you know, that's a, something that's sacred and it, it shouldn't be inquired into, even though, like you say, it's a lot of valuable information if you, if you, if you get it. So I certainly don't fault them for, for attempting to do that. Right. All right. Well, Ronnie, we uh, wish you the best of luck on the rest of the, the Wickersham cases. It was a tremendous job. And, and um, I think this, you know, um, issue of, uh, you know, the causation and suicide, 
related to the collision and his his pain is uh, obviously it's a very important issue and, and a fascinating issue. And um, I think, uh, you know, like Yvonne said, I read the briefs and I thought you all did an excellent job. So I, I feel like you've got a, um, a, a really great chance of, of holding it up and uh, we wish you the best of luck with that. And we'll, we'll be there in your cheering section. So keep us, right. keep us updated. Hopefully, yeah, exactly. Hopefully we'll be successful, you know, I mean, as you always want to be successful for your clients and, uh, but you know, as with all this, you have to take what the court says and, you know, we, we only, we got, got to take the law as we get it. And, uh, you know, we certainly will advocate for it to be in our client's interest. But So know, we, Ronnie, I'm sorry. Well, one thing I was thinking about is was the verdict then broken down between uh, his the pre-death um, pain and suffering, and then the um, and then the value of life. And if so, what was the breakdown there? Um, yes, it was. Unfortunately, the way the judge did it, you know, if they say the wrongful death, for example, we can't keep it. The other parts would. Um, there was a, a, a pre-death. Uh, pain and suffering verdict medical bills for him of I can't remember exactly let's say a million and million two hundred thousand and then uh, maybe a, a, a million for his wife's loss of consortium um, and or maybe just under a million for her loss of consortium during that time and then the wrongful death uh, verdict I believe would have been maybe a million seven or somewhere in there. Right. The balance of maybe another million for her uh, loss of consortium post-death. So there was four different breakdowns. And the jury found for us on negligence, breach of warranty, and strict liability. So, you know, there was a fairly long verdict form. But fortunately, it's all broken out nicely so that – um you know, if, if the court rules against us on one part, the remainders, you know, we know what the, what the amounts were on those separate, um, you know, separate causes of action. Right. And the only question at this point left is this issue of, uh, uh, whether or not there's a heightened standard for suicide. I think that's the big issue. Yeah. Okay. Well, again, recoverable at all. But right, right. Well, again, the fantastic job, and it's been great talking to you, um, Yvonne. Any uh, any last uh, last questions? No, I can't wait to cheer you on at the Supreme Court. So you better you better keep us updated when you get that oral argument. I will. Um, well, um, thank you for your for your uh, interest in the case, and I hope y'all good luck in your endeavor. All right. Well, we appreciate it, and uh, thank you so much, Ronnie. Um, so that uh, concludes the case of Wickersham versus Ford, which again was tried up in um, the U.S. District Court of South Carolina Buford Division. And um, if you would like to find out more about Ronnie Crosby or his firm, you can look him up at uh, www.pmpd.com. That's P, uh, Peters, Murdahl, Parker, Elksroth, and Dietrich. So um, thank you, everybody. Thank you, Yvonne. Thank you. Thank you, Ronnie. Yeah, take care, man. All right. You too. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, have you reached a verdict? Thank you for listening to the Great Trials Podcast. You can visit us online at greattrialspodcast.com. 
We realize in the show that sometimes we use terminology that not everybody would be familiar with or that uh, we haven't uh, always explained every part of the jury trial process. So we've done two special shows, one on legal terminology, and Yvonne, that's going to be hopefully not that boring. Uh, we, we, we've uh, included a number of people in that so that uh, we can make that more entertaining, and a show on the jury trial process. And we've also put uh, links to uh, those episodes on our greattrialspodcast.com, as well as a uh, glossary of the legal terminology on the uh, website. Yeah, so check those out. If you have a trial you would like to be featured on the Great Trials podcast, or if you're a trial lawyer and you want to be on the show, or if you're just a person who has something that you want to say to us, please email us at info at greattrialspodcast.com. Note if you have something mean to say, we don't have email. Right, exactly. <laughs> we only need uh, positive commentary. Yeah, we're fragile. Yeah. Um, you can also rate or review us uh, wherever you get your podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever. Again, if you have something mean to say, um, our podcast is not available for review. We, we also want to thank uh, the people behind the scenes. Uh, one is Taras Misher, who is our uh, uh, podcast extraordinaire. Uh, he is from Podcast on the Go. And Allison Hirsch uh, from Capricorn Communications. She is a magician when it comes to putting these shows together and getting them scheduled. And this has been the Great Trials Podcast, and we appreciate your time and hope you'll listen again. Thank you for listening.